Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA Primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at fredericksprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Stephanie Jemison lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. She earned an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in 2009 and a BA in Comparative Literature from Columbia University in 2003. Her work is in the public collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and Cadist, amongst others. Her work was included in the Whitney Biennial in 2019, as well as in the touring group exhibition Black Refractions, highlights from the Studio Museum in Harlem 2019-2020. Other collaborative and group exhibitions include the Drawing Center, the Brooklyn Museum, the New Museum of Contemporary Art, and many others. She served as a visiting artist at many institutions, including the University of Pennsylvania, Brown, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Hampshire College, the Evergreen State College, and Georgia State University. She's taught fine art at Columbia University, Parsons, Wellesley College, Trinity College, Rice University, Cooper Union, and other institutions. And she's currently an assistant professor in the Department of Art and Design at Rutgers University. I spoke to Stephanie about many things, including music, performing, creativity, and much more. Here's our conversation. this weird uh, kind of um, in-between neighborhood. Uh, I live sort of at the eastern edge of Bed-Stuy, but it's also, um, I live really close to Atlantic Avenue, so I almost live in Crown Heights. In fact, a lot of times um, maps of Bed-Stuy, they'll kind of end at Fulton, but then there's this like no man's land between Fulton and Atlantic, um, yeah. but I live in between those two streets. And then I, um, so I, so I live, um, because I live so far east, um, although technically it's usually considered Bed-Stuy, it's really, it's past the Ralph Avenue stop and um, is um, really close to East New York, um, also close to a neighborhood that's sometimes called Ocean Hill, yeah. which is actually kind of like a historic designation um, that isn't used as often anymore. Um, so yeah, very, like I live in like a, a funny, a funny intersection neighborhood. One of those kind of like Bermuda Triangles of Brooklyn. Totally. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's definitely. funny. I, I've lived in Brooklyn for 20 years and for a long time, I only knew certain neighborhoods based on like subways or friends or, you know, just the places I would go. And then my son started playing travel soccer. So they play in all these fields that are sometimes far away from subways, you know, in different pockets of areas. And I would think to myself, I've been all over Brooklyn, like visiting friends and going to different places. And you can still to this day find a little area that's just this 
like in between zone, you know, it's, totally. it's pretty cool. Cause like I rarely just go walking around different neighborhoods all over. I mean, Brooklyn's huge. It is huge. Yeah. How long, I, how, I, how long have you been there? I've been, um, so I, I moved to New York in, um, 1999, I guess. So a little over 20 years ago. Um, but I lived in Manhattan for the first, uh, maybe seven or eight years. And then I moved around, um, also kind of coming in and out of living full time in the city. And I've been in the, in, in my, um, current place since, I guess, uh, 2014 maybe yeah. or 2015 I should remember but I don't and I think that um, probably the closest I had to your experience of getting to know the borough um, better uh, is actually when we moved into our current place which we had to do some um, renovations um, renovations here when we moved and um, that required we worked with a, a guy from Bay Ridge uh, a, a um, um, he he had this company, Olympian Builders. He was Greek, he says, um, mm -hmm. and um, he <laughs> he sent us all around the city to um, these all of these like very kind of. He had this um, very ethnically specific way of understanding how building trades are are managed in Brooklyn. So it was like a really um, uh, tribal uh, approach to thinking of, um, about um, the, the 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 kind of I don't know the geography of Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, uh, didn't necessarily correspond with the way that I think about the city, but I also learned a lot um, about uh, the different communities here. But I like taking walks actually in my neighborhood. I, I walk. I like to walk east into um, Highland Park, um, Glendale, um, to the Ridgewood Reservoir, to um, even over to Forest Park or into Cypress Hills. Um, yeah, through the cemeteries. Yeah. Yeah. Do you um, do you work where you live, or do you have a separate space? I have a studio. Yeah. I haven't been spending much time there since we've since the um, COVID nineteen situation. But um, my studio is actually really close to where I live, um, although it's in a completely different um, a completely different type of neighborhood. It's in East New York, um, kind of in Brownsville, and it's probably a fifteen minute walk. But it's entirely industrial. Um, really, um, yeah, quite different. Yeah. But I'm lucky so, to be able to walk to the studio. Yeah, that's great. Um, but yeah, so you've been staying in. I, um, well, I, so I teach at Rutgers, New Brunswick. Um, yeah. So I have like a, a, a monster commute usually. Um, I, I don't go in every day, but I'm there two or three times a week, sometimes more in the spring. And um, so actually, it's funny because I, you, um, and, and you know this because we had a little bit of a rough time scheduling <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> I tr I'm like constantly traveling. I, I overbook myself. It's um, really horrible. Um, I, am, I get so excited about even, um, I don't know, all kinds of different things. I, like I get excited about um, different, being in dialogue with different communities. And um, there are so many conversations that feel connected to my work. And so it's really hard for me to say no to things and I end up um, and so I end up um, in the midst of craziness and I remember one of the one of the conversations one of the times that we were thinking about talking um, was right before I was supposed to go um, first it was like this weird multi-part trip I went to England and then I mean I actually went to Rutgers right I was teaching in New 
Brunswick. And then fortunately, um, New, Brun New Brunswick is on the same train line as the Newark airport. And so often I actually fly straight from, straight from class. So I'm like oh, always yeah. at school with my suitcase. Um, so, I, so, I, so I went to New Brunswick. I went to Newark. I flew um, to London and from there took a train to Margate um, and spent a night in Margate um, where, I, where I gave a talk um, as part of this symposium at the um, at this museum called the Turner Contemporary, kind of mm -hmm. like this little museum. And then I went back um, to London and flew from there to Toronto, to Montreal, um, where I um, had a screening and a performance. And that was all in the space of like four days. And so then I, I when I came back, um, I came back to, to New York and spent the night in New York and then went to school the next day. And um, that was the day we learned that... Um, that students were being asked to leave campus effective immediately. This was the last week of school. It was the week before spring break um, uh, in early March. And since then, I remember even then not totally being able to wrap my head around um, the changes that were to come. And I, I remember thinking, um, I, 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 I take a lot of like, I have a lot of fitness related hobbies. And so one of my favorite ones is this gymnastics class, these adult gymnastics classes I like taking. So I was like, should I go to gymnastics? It hasn't been canceled. Maybe I should go, but maybe it would be irresponsible to go. But if I don't go now, I might not be able to go for months. I have no idea. And I didn't go. And of course, I haven't been since. And I've barely, um, I've barely been in any um, building that is not my own house, yeah. uh, actually, since early March. Yeah, what me too. Yeah. It's crazy, right, that, that just to think back, it hasn't been that long, but to that time where you're like, oh, should I go to the gym? You know, because I had that thought too. I was like, I think it was a day or two before it shut down and I was going to try to go to the gym every morning. And I was like, should I go in there? And, you know, thinking of all the people in there, I was like, well, maybe it's not worth it. And now looking back, I was like, that's probably a good choice. But how would we have known, you know? There was no way to know. There really wasn't a lot of guidance. And looking back, it just seems crazy how many forms. I was on like seven planes and um, so many forms of public transportation. I took like yeah. so many trains, even just to get like to get to this town in northern England. I had to, I had to, you know, I, it was like a, a a train to the air train to the plane to a uh, express train to you know a bustling train station and another train to a taxi <laughs> to a hotel. It's just so crazy. And then the whole thing back again the next day. And right. people coughing. You know how British, not, um, not no offense to any British listeners, but you know how there's that like kind of like anxious coughing. I felt yeah. like <laughs> right, right. the news, the news, you know, the news of um, the spread of coronavirus was in the air. People, you know, they, I could see people reading newspapers and being like, <laughs> Right oh, on geez. the train, and I was like, Stop "No it. masks either." You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, well, that's all changed. Have you been teaching online? Did you finish your semester? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. finished online. I'm finishing now, actually. My grades are due today, but yeah, there are always things that linger. So, yeah. And what classes do you? What areas do you teach in? Um, in the spring semester, usually I teach um, a graduate seminar, which is which is interdisciplinary and really open. And this semester uh, and last year also, the, the, grad, the graduate seminar I taught um, was called Possibilities. And mm -hmm. it's kind of a, a class around um, uh, really inviting students to use the community of the class as material. Um, uh, 
I don't know. It's actually really hard to describe, um, but it's um, it was it was a really beautiful experience, and it's very um, very social, very um, kind of performance involved, um, and translated pretty well, I think, online because we had built such a strong foundation uh, in person. And then the other class um, that I taught this spring was actually a performance a performance class um, that isn't so much about performance in any traditional way. Um, it's that's not that's not um, really the way that I think about movement and the body, but more about um, embodied experience and and like using using your sort of physical experience as a as a site of research and as a as a resource for thinking about your work, um, and also encouraging students to really think about the embodied experience of others as they encounter as they encounter um, work of all mediums. So there there were painters and drawing students as well as students who work with sound and video and performance in that class. That sounds great. That's why I was, I'm part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you is because you, it seems as though, I mean, obviously like music is a big part of your life and performance and this kind of like the, the merging between or the blurring of these areas between, you know, performance, video, art, music, and all that stuff. So it's something- Are you a I'm, musician? Yeah, well, I played music my whole life and sound and vision. Like we always, I'm always talking about music and I, I have such a addiction to drawing parallels between visual art and, and sound and music and those creative expressions. So it's, it's something that's I've always been interested in and studied a little bit and played music. So, yeah. But so can we take it back to growing up? So you were you grew up in California, right? Actually, no. I, um, so I, I was born in California. But um, my parents moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, within, you know, months after I was born. So I grew up in Cincinnati. So that explains the Carnegie Museum of Art summer thing that you did, right? Well, the... Um, the so proximity? The, um, my mother is from Pittsburgh. Um, so I... Me too. Um, oh, really? <laughs> I grew up in Pittsburgh, yeah. So oh, that's, that's when so I read that you were going to the Carnegie, I was like, I grew up actually in Carnegie in Pittsburgh. Oh, which is a little cool. part of the cities on the south side that, you know, so it's, that was the museum that I used to go to as a kid and where I sort of found in my love for art. And, you know, music was a big thing too growing up in, in Pittsburgh with jazz music and stuff. So, but yeah, so I'm from there as well. So she was originally from Pittsburgh. My mother grew up in Pittsburgh and, um, and so I, um, and apologies um, in advance for the sound of the sirens. And oh, things. that's um, I'm near a window and I'm in Brooklyn, so it's loud. Um, totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, my mother grew up in Cincinnati and my father grew up in Chicago. And, yeah. um, but they met in D.C. and moved to California um, and um, had spent some years in California working. And then um, after I was born, they moved to Cincinnati um, where my, my dad had taken a job. And, um, but also, of course, it has the advantage of being very convenient to both of their families and in those in those two cities we were like um you know right in between yeah um, the exact definitely. same distance driving the halfway distance. point <laughs> exactly um i mean not the most efficient halfway point that probably would have been in northern ohio or something <laughs> but fortunately we got it was a little warmer than that yeah um so what did they what did they do that what was the work that had them moving from cincinnati to california and Oh, my dad um, was uh, an attorney. He's retired mm -hmm. now, but he worked for a big company and um, just um, had an opportunity. Um, he had actually gone to Ohio State for law school, so I think he had a lot of connections um, 
and uh, relationships in Ohio. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, it's, he's one of, um, he's someone who's so modest and, you know, incredibly humble. And he always talks about how grateful he is to be given these different opportunities. But of course, he was also a really ambitious and hard worker um, who himself um, grew up without a lot of resources and was able to, um, was able to, um, to work really hard to, to find um, some, you know, both success and a certain amount, you know, satisfaction for himself. Um, yeah. Now, was, he, was he creative in his work or did he have hobbies that were creative or where does the creativity you think that you got come from? <laughs> That's a funny question. I don't, you know, it's funny because I don't know, I don't even know what creativity means exactly. So sometimes I think we talk about it like there's some kind of special sauce, like some people have it or you inherit it or something like that. But I think, you know, if you were to, if you were to, example, if you were to give um, a personality test or something like that, I'm sure I wouldn't, I'm sure I wouldn't um, um, win any kind of um, creativity awards. I'm not, um, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not that um, for me, inventiveness or um, my engagement with ideas um, as much from um, like a deep commitment to and interest in the world in general and how it works and how we can change it and how we can imagine it otherwise um, and also with a really deep commitment to an interest in history um, rather than rather than a belief that there's um, um, that I have some kind of magical fairy dust <laughs> of creativity, um, which unfortunately, um, if, I, if, if, there are, if there are those kinds of blessings, um, those are not mine. No, I so, don't have that either. I don't have that either. <laughs> I think that's kind of like the antiquated notion of what creativity is. I think more so of creativity as being this, um, this urgency to think outside of a, you know, a specific path. So in other words, like you just get interested in certain things or you want to deep dive or you want to, you know, take the road that's slightly more curvy around the straight line path or, you know, there's a lot of different definitions of it in my mind of what creativity is, but it's just something that um, drives people to think about or to investigate or to want to dive deeper and not just take the surface path of something. Not that there's anything wrong with the surface path, but, you know, I just think it's, it's something that, um, that's why I ask, I, I'm not asking so much of like, oh, did your, you know, did your parents paint on the weekends? More so like, were they the kind of thinkers that, you know, got creative about things? And, and do you identify with any of that kind of thinking? And it sounds like you do based on what you just said. Yeah, you know, I, um, I, I, both of my parents were, um, had to bring in incredible ingenuity and imagination in order to even get to where they, where they are, um, you know, to imagine yourself out of poverty, to imagine yourself a college or, or, you know, law school graduate that requires a, <laughs> a, a pretty big imagination when you grow up, um, yeah. when you grow up, um, you know, um, where, where um, my family grew up. And I think um, for sure I inherited that, um, that, that, that um, sense of making a, that, or that, that sense that there's a possibility always of making a way where there is no way, as they, as they say. Um, my, um, my, father, my father's parents were um, deeply involved with the church. My father's father was a preacher, a, a pastor at a, um, at what became a very large church on the south side of Chicago. So he, um, 
which means, of course, that he's a, a writer and a community organizer and political organizer and convener of people, um, but also um, a, a person who had this incredible kind of radical um, sensitivity to the um, needs of the people around him. And my father um, inherited that for sure. Um, my mother's mother was a social worker, actually. Um, and um, so um, my mother grew up on the, uh, I guess it's the east side of Pittsburgh. Um, and um, she, um, I think um, my mother always knew, um, was so inspired by how hard her own mother had worked and how much her own mother had achieved. And, um, and um, I mean, and, and so what I, what I really learned from my mother is, um, is that truly anything is possible. Um, yeah. yeah, my parents are both, um, are both very, um, uh, I don't know, dedicated hard workers. That is, is the best that I can say, um, among their many other gifts. Yeah. Was, um, growing up, was music a big part of the house or I know a lot, a lot of times church has a lot of, you know, a big music element to it, or was that something, how were you exposed to music and like, how was it important as a kid? Um, so my, my mother, both of my, it's funny, both of my grandparents, um, had, you know, as, as, um, uh, how do you just, um, you know, part of that, part of the kind of um, aspirational nature of um, the household was to have a piano. And so I, I remember that my grandparents' sides had, had a piano when I was growing up. And um, on, my, on my mother's side, at a certain point, she, they gifted the piano to us in, in Cincinnati, which involved like transporting a piano from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati, which didn't seem like such a big deal to me at the time. But in retrospect, clearly only a real, you know, personal attachment would lead you to, to send um, just a pretty, pretty standard upright piano, like a studio piano, um, all the way from Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up, um, and, and um, I grew up, um, of course, I was exposed to music through the church. Although, despite what I just said about my parents' relationship to the church, my parents were not themselves super religious. So mm-hmm. um, I grew up going to church um, and holidays, and I and um, I was culturally really um, exposed to the church. I went to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and that kind of thing. But um, but it wasn't. It actually wasn't. It wasn't um, like excessive. Um, and um, but I did take piano lessons. Um, I, I I think that my mother said that I had wanted to take piano lessons, um, and I started those when I was pretty young. I wasn't I wasn't particularly good, but I I liked to you know, to, to, to improvise and write music and play pop songs and that kind of thing. And, um, and that was a, a big part of my life. Was it, uh, was there music in the house growing up or was it more of just playing piano and, and, you know, your investigation into it? I think there was music in a kind of standard way. Like I, um, I, uh, my, you know, I think maybe I was particularly attuned or particularly connected to the music that was around me. Um, it was car culture, and so we spent a lot of time listening to the radio. And I remember um, I, I, I mentioned I take adult gymnastics. This is because I was a competitive gymnast as a kid, and a lot of my early um, music memories are related to um, what we what we listened to in gymnastics. I was there for you know three or four hours a day, and so it was like a lot of um radio that was really different from what i heard at home yeah Um, yeah and then i played clarinet and other you know other band instruments 
Right. And, and that was in school. I mean, were you taking art classes too? Was it something early on that you enjoyed doing, like drawing or, you know, doing any sort of art stuff? You know, I wasn't super interested in um, visual art classes in school. Like, I was never that into the, um, the um, technique-oriented visual arts classes, I guess you would say. Um, yeah. But my favorite classes were, I was, um, I went to Catholic school, so we, um, we, you know, we took religion classes, and um, I grew up, I said Cincinnati, but Cincinnati is this kind of German Catholic place where people often go to Catholic school. Um, I took philosophy classes, so um, as a result, and I really, really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed philosophy. I was, you know, I really enjoyed literature, and I started, I, you know, I was really into writing. I started a creative writing club in my high school. Um, I was really, I was really into, um, I was like a very kind of, I, looking back, um, I had a lot of interests that were very, like, weirdly kind of theoretical. Like I remember reading um, um, Bertrand Russell's autobiography when I was in high school and thinking that was like so cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, I wasn't reading that in high school. <laughs> That's for sure. I was really into like, like the kind of philosophical side of math, but I was so bad at, um, at not maybe not, not bad, but certainly not good at actual math. So. That's interesting. Like, cause thinking about when I look at your work, it's, you know, it's it's not it doesn't seem placed in one specific obviously one specific area or medium and it really the, the message of the work seems to be this anchor through these different threads of how that message is getting out you know what i mean and it it that's kind of a tune or a parallel it seems to this idea of like well i'm not so interested in like doing the math or like being good at you know the quadratic equation or whatever it is, but the idea of it and what it can do and what it can express, you know what I mean, is compelling. So it seems like that is kind of like the waters that your art, quote unquote, is like navigating, right? I think so. Maybe um, I um, definitely I didn't come to art until later um, in, in terms of a sort of imagining um, imagining the um, like professional context of art as a place where my, where I could live as a thinker. Um, when I was growing up, I thought I would be a writer and, um, I, and I was also really interested in kind of human rights and social justice. And I, I thought that my, my, my career would somehow exist in that place. And, um, I studied literature in college and, um, was involved. I did some um, some curatorial work and some music, and I took photographs, and you know, I published some short stories and that kind of thing. But um, I didn't. I, I definitely was on a um, a, a more academic track, um, and uh, um, yeah. But I, but at the same time, I always knew that um, that actually the academy um, in itself didn't quite feel satisfying. I did. I, I couldn't imagine writing for such a um, um, what felt at the time to be a kind of narrow community, uh, a narrow audience. I always imagined that um, the people who were my heroes were like the journalists who wrote for the Village Voice when I went to I went to college in New York, um, yeah. or people who were um, who were doing really ambitious um, cultural journalism that that reached a lot of people. Um, and so I, it wasn't until it wasn't really until after college that um, I began to kind of poke around and try and um, try and figure out. Um, where, where, what, what container could hold all of the all of the ideas I wanted to move through, and um, and and first actually um, 
uh, studied filmmaking, like I, I, you know, I started a, a graduate program in filmmaking, but found that to be a little bit too constrained um, for my interest. And so I, I, um, I shifted to a broader visual art context. Yeah, so that was Chicago, right? Where you went to get your MFA? Yep. So did you have this revelation or this feeling like, okay, well, you know, art or the arts is the way that I want my ideas to be sort of expressed or come out? Um, I don't know if I had a revelation, um, but what, what um, there are a few things that happened. One is that when I was in undergrad, I had the, um, I received a, um, fellowship through my to my college um, like a grant to my college um, to work on a collaborative project with a friend and we interviewed um, dozens of artists who are working in a lot of different media um, uh, and who were thinking about social justice in relation to their creative work um, including writers and people who worked in theater and um, performance and music um, so many different kinds of people um, and um, you know some of the people that we interviewed were um, it's so funny thinking back on this, Michael Rakowitz, um, Andrea Geyer, um, I think we interviewed, um, we interviewed, um, uh, Jennifer Miller from Circus Amok. I remember, I remember interviewing her. I think we might've interviewed Marion Ghani. Um, they're actually, um, I'm, uh, I think maybe, um, Carissa McLow. Now I, I, it's hard to remember because there were so many, it was actually so many people. Um, um, but that project, um, that research project um, exposed me to a kind of, um, maybe to a way of thinking in a more productive way around um, what had seemed to me previously just to be failures of art practice in relation to, um, in relation to, I started to think more about um, uh, ways in which failures could be productive um, or ways in which um, the distance between what you imagine and what you can do um, that pointing to that distance might be generative um, as a practice as a kind of ongoing practice and I, I started to think um, you know I'm not I, um, I, I, th I think I felt um, that there were some things that were that came more easily to me, I guess. Um, for example, um, writing was something I was uh, super comfortable with. Um, yeah. And I started to think that it might be more productive to, to, to devote my, my practice, my, my, my kind of professional life as an adult to something that was um, always and kind of by definition difficult, like something that would never, um, that, would, that would never be fully satisfying or that would always feel, um, that would always feel a little out of reach. And, um, Somehow I, and I was working at the time for Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, managing the swing space um, uh, studio program, um, which emerged after um, September 11th with funding from the September 11th fund. And, um, and so um, in connection with that, I also was working with and um, in conversation with a lot of young artists in New York. And um, over time, I began to, um, I began to kind of narrow my interests. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I mean, that idea, I don't know if this is a correct um, sort of interpretation of that, of this desire to go or to express in a way that you'll never feel like you get it or that it's, I mean, that's art in a nutshell, right? The subjectivity and the sort of blurriness of what it is, is really 
provides like an endless opportunity to explore and also an endless opportunity to feel like you never find that <laughs> that ultimate sort of and you know it's kind of like the idea that you know sometimes i'll have students who want to make like the best painting or like the perfect painting or the perfect sculpture and it's like well if you did that you would just be done like if you wrote the perfect song then it's over then what fun is <laughs> exploring through ideas you know exactly you know, take us through like getting here and, and, and how you got sort of into the, you know, into your day to day that you're doing now. Well, when I was, um, so I, I went to graduate school in Chicago uh, in part because I had family there and um, was interested in, in, in connecting with them and, um, and maybe being a little closer. Um, kind of intellectually with um, my interests, um, especially because I, I, it felt really important to me um, and still is really important to me to be um, part of a community of, um, of Black artists and intellectuals. And there's um, that sort of density and um, support and, um, and richness is really present here in New York in a way that um, is, is present elsewhere, but um, felt like a little bit less available to me at the time. And so I knew I would want to be in New York. Um, and as a result, I knew that I probably should take some time away um, to figure out, um, to expose myself to other ways of thinking. So, um, so I went to graduate school in Chicago, which was, um, which was um, great in some ways. I, I worked with some amazing faculty, um, uh, some of whom are still incredibly important to me as, as, as thinkers and as artists and as colleagues and supporters. Um, and I met some, I, I met some amazing people. Um, and, um, but I also knew while I was there that it wasn't, um, that it probably wasn't the best place for me to start my next steps. For one thing, I felt as though I was just beginning to scratch the surface of what I wanted my own practice to do as an artist. And I had, um, and I had made the decision to, um, when I entered graduate school, I was still doing a little bit of curatorial work and still doing some writing. And I made the decision to completely stop writing or working with language in relation, in, in, in connection to my work as a kind of, um, in order to force myself to build new tools. And um, I also made the decision to really immerse myself in the, um, the, the kind of vocabulary and um, art historical genealogies that I felt I needed to understand in order to kind of situate my practice um, in relation to at least a, a kind of European or European American um, lineage. And so that work was, um, that was like a, you know, it's a big study, it's a big undertaking. Um, and I knew that I was just getting started by the time graduate school um, was, was coming to a close. So I was very focused actually on applying to um, fellowships um, that would enable me to continue to work in a kind of protected way after I, after I, after I graduated. Um, and um, I decided to go to the core program in Houston. Um, in some ways it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the most um, obvious fit. I was interested because I, I was, um, I had, at, at that point I um, was friendly with, um, with Leslie Hewitt and um, some other artists who were um, alumni of that program, and they spoke so highly of their experience in Houston. But it also felt strange to me. I'd never lived in the South, um, and um, it was hard to know um, what I would what I would be 
um, getting myself into socially, culturally to move, yeah. to move there. And so actually I remember visiting when I visited, I, I figured, well, I might as well um, make a trip, check it out and tell them in person that I, that I can't do it. Um, um, but that way at least I'll meet them and, you know, maybe make, maybe I'll connect to some of the people that were on the selection committee or something. I don't know exactly what I thought, but um, I, when I went down there, I ended up um, being really, seduced by the pace and feeling that um, this was the place where I would really be able to uh, expand my my studio practice in a way that would be really hard to do um, if I went directly to New York because I was also considering a program in New York and so um, I decided to I decided to go to the core and spent two years there um, the second year of which I was also in residence at um, Project Grow Houses and that was amazing um, transformative two years that really uh, changed me and um, during which time I really grew into the thinker that I am now. Um, That's intense. Like two weeks, you were going down to say like, nope, can't do it. And then (laughs) two years, (laughs) which is very nice of you to go in person to say like, no, I'm not going to do this. And then wait a minute, this place is pretty cool. And two years. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But you never know. I mean, I, you know, I'm really grateful to myself. Part of it was that one of my best friends in Chicago at the time was from Houston. And she said, oh, we can go together. And, you know, it'll be so fun. We'll stay with my dad. He lives in the suburbs. And we'll, you know, we'll, um, we'll hang out. You get to meet my family. And I, and I was, and I thought, okay, perfect. This is, you know, this is, this is, of course we'll go down and we'll see what it's like. And yeah. I remember we rented a car. I think my driver's license might've, um, might've lapsed or maybe not, but maybe only she had insurance. I can't remember, but I just remember, um, and sorry, Boogie, if you're listening, but I remember she was like a crazy driver. <laughs> and we, when we went down there, we rented, we had rented like a small car and the woman at the, at the, um, um, the car, um, at the car rental company said, oh, you are too small to drive that small car. Um, you need a big car to protect you. And so she, and so she gave us like this much bigger car. <laughs> Houston sized car. Exactly. Yeah. Right. She was like, oh, you, you, you're way too small to be in that small car. <laughs> That's so funny. I've never, I wouldn't even think of that. Like, oh, you're really small. You need a giant SUV to drive around. It never would have occurred to me. No. So the two years was informative and shaped you in some way and had a big impact? Yeah, yeah, my two years there were really great. And I learned, I, you know, I, I, I just, um, I don't even know how I would point to the highlights. I was, um, felt really connected actually to the directors of the, of the program, um, uh, Joe, Joseph Pavel and uh, Mary LeClaire, um, both of whom were so um, incredibly, committed um, to not just the program, but to the ideas they explored individually as artists. And Joe is an amazing sculptor. He's also a musician. He's in a band. Um, so good. Um, such a, um, um, they both had built these lives that felt really um, satisfied and in a kind of self-contained way. Like they didn't need someone else to, to or, or um, specific kinds of external validation to feel happy with their lives in the day to day. And, that um, that made a really strong impression on me, and I I also became um, really connected to and learned a lot from the artists that were living there that I met there. Um, Jamal Cyrus, um, with whom I worked closely, um, we started a, a book club together during my second year um, that was supported by Project Row Houses. Um, but he's such an amazing uh, thinker and artist, and um, 
really was um, really influential for me. Also, some of the community that was connected to Project Row Houses. Um, I remember um, I met Terry Atkins in Houston, and um, Theaster Gates was working in Houston on a project um, um, at, at Project Row Houses. Um, Theaster and I are, um, of course, you know, we knew each other from Chicago, but um, we didn't really you know, get to know each other better until, 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 until we were in Houston, um, as well as, as well as, um, many, many other artists. And, um, and, of, and of course, one of the most important of these was, was Rick Lowe, um, the founder, uh, of Project Row Houses, who is such an incredible visionary and, um, such a generous and kind person, um, really, um, complex, thinker um, who challenged a lot of my ideas and from whom I really grew a lot. That's great. Um, well, one thing I, I want to ask, when I was looking into your work and, and how you sort of described it in text, I don't have it in front of me, so I hope this is not incorrect, but you met, there was a mentioning that you're interested in quiet, which I thought was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how that is in you know your work in relation to that concept and that idea sure um well um so um the way that i um use the word quiet is influenced by the the thinker um kevin kwashi um who has written about quiet as a as a value in relation to um black cultural production in particular. And um, I, I first, I think I first started writing and talking and thinking about, um, about quiet um, um, when I was asked to respond. Um, this is after I moved back to New York, I was asked to respond to participate in a symposium that was responding to the Now Dig This exhibition organized by Kelly Jones um, at um, PS1. And um, in the panel, um, or in my in my talk, um, um, as I was preparing for the talk, one of the things I was thinking a lot about was why this um, community of artists um, in Los Angeles um, who were working um, in the 60s and 70s, why this community of artists um, had been overlooked, like why their work wasn't legible um, uh, or as visible as it should have been. And I was thinking about the ways in which it, um, actually part of the problem um, was that it hadn't been legible as political because of the kind of overdetermined under understanding of what um, black politics looks like, what black political expression looks like, um, and um, the fact that um, much of the work in, in, in the exhibition didn't um, correspond, um, didn't, didn't um, meet um, those expectations. It wasn't necessarily gestural, it wasn't um, um, expressive, it um, wasn't invested in representation, um, or in a kind of um, project um, that was connected to um, to kind of correcting a um, erasure or giving quote unquote voice, um, or um, a, a project that was invested in the politics of of, um, of representation, and um, it also was um, pretty disconnected from I think conventional ideas um, around. Um, resistance as the as the kind of dominant or you know only available um, political um, tool or strategy or or maybe the only um, valid um, 
uh, meaningful um, political strategy or goal for black artists. Um, and so I was, I was thinking a lot about, um, about the way that, um, that um, Kevin Kwashi had diagnosed um, this, um, this um, kind of overdetermined relationship between blackness and expressivity and a kind of a certain kind of public life um, um, with um, um, with or, you know that, that, that these were um, that these were kind of inextricably linked um, and the kind of violence or the limitations associated um, with that view and um, begin to write and think about um, to write and think about um, alternatives um, and um, one of these um one of these one of these was quiet um i you know i uh i guess i could say more um no no it's 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 really it's really interesting i I thought of it because um when thinking about quiet um one of my favorite musicians is flying lotus and i don't know if you've ever seen the movie that khalil joseph did called until the quiet comes yep it's just one of the most amazing films that that idea of quiet and you know, but through music, that connection of those two things is is so compelling. But yeah, I, I, I love that, the sort of poetic idea of, of, you know, quiet in work. And when I was looking at that installation, well, actually, some of the performances that you do are so heavily incorporating music into that, you know, how did you start sort of combining, you know, the work you do with performance with music? That is a good question. Um, trying to think of when I first um, started actually working with music and installations. I mean, and so um, I mentioned that I had gone to film school for a year, um, and that I, you know, that I, uh, there's this, um, there's um, a part of my practice is is video related, and I guess in connection with that, um, I had often been thinking about sound, um, and when I was um, um, when I, before I went to graduate school, my, um, one of my best friends and I, um, began to collaborate on a project, um, that was a kind of documentary fiction hybrid that took place, um, in our neighborhood. Um, we were living in, um, Bed-Stuy at the time, but the op- actual opposite part of Bed-Stuy is where I live now, um, near the, near the Myrtle Willoughby stop. Um, and, we made, so we made this work together called Vernon Avenue. And um, for, in order to, um, as we were making the work, we advertised for, we decided to hire um, um, the, as, as, as the protagonist, this actor who would be a little girl. And so we put these posters all around the neighborhood, like we're doing a casting call for, you know, a nine-year-old, a girl that's like nine to 11 and it pays this much and, you know, call us or whatever. And we got a call from this woman who said, um, I have three, I, I'm the manager for my son and his two best friends and they're 15. Um, and um, so I know they're not a nine-year-old girl, but I really think they're, per- I'm sure they're perfect for your movie. Um, and we thought, okay. <laughs> um, and so we agreed to meet them. And of course, you know, they were not the nine-year-old girl who's the protagonist of Vernon Avenue, but we did end up um, incorporating them into the work. Like we did end up um, shooting um, a few scenes with them um, that were amazing. They're incredible um, performers. And also, um, and I was, and they were still really on my mind when I went to graduate school a couple years later. Um, uh, and so um, I, I think the first um, work I made that um, um, closely connected sound 
music language um, was a was a work that I made with them uh, in 2000. I guess it was um, 2008, and I um, invited them to um, improvisationally interpret a um, text um, by Larry Neal, the the poet writer Larry Neal from the um, book that he and uh, Amiri Baraka edited, Black Fire. Um, it was a this kind of seminal Black arts movement text, and um, one of the um, I was really interested at that at the time when I was in, uh, uh, when I was um, a student, and of course um, still today, I was really interested in um, the way that the Black arts movement. Um, um, identified a tension between um, black music, which it understood to be um, to have a kind of popular appeal and to have organically emerged um, from the um, uh, from the from the lives and the cultural practices of everyday people um, to be both by and for them, um, um, so that it was you know it was understood as this kind of authentically black form of expression in um, in, um, in, you know, in distinction to something like um, black theater or writing, uh, literature, um, poetry, even, um, which were, um, and certainly visual art, which were understood as, um, as um, uh, really uh, influenced by European models and um, maybe inadequate to um, representing black experience or expressing black experience or, um, you know, not, um, connected to black experience and that um, that tension was something that I was interested in in thinking through and so I made this work in which I invited these um, three teenagers um, to sort of drawing from their own musical lexicon um, improvisationally interpret this text um, and in, in, in doing that to um, to to, um, um, to point the 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 the, the viewer, listener, witnesses attention to the, the kind of tension um, between language and, and sound. Um, and um, in particular, I was thinking about the way that music is sometimes figured as excessive, like rhetorically excessive to language and, um, and, um, and whether and how it might be possible to reverse that expectation. Um, and so I, I made that work and then I continued to work with the, um, that, with those three um, in a series of works um, until um, maybe 2013 or 2014. Um, the last um, work that collaboration or connection that I had with them was this um, project that I did for LAX Art that was curated by Amanda Hunt. Um, and um, we, made, we made this work. Um, I invited them to um, interpret uh, improvisationally, but in a much more complex way, um, I um, had developed a, a, a kind of um, an even more, I don't know, a, a more complicated way of thinking about what um, sort of live group improvisation might sound like and what it might um, produce. Um, but I started to, um, I invited them to um, interpret a text by Huey P. Newton um, from a speech he gave at Boston College in 1970. Um, uh, and um, built this um, this um, this sound installation um, over an hour. Um, so um, I, I I worked with um, Lonique. Their names are Lonique, Bon, and Wayne, and they had a um, they had a a, um, a a group called the Sidetrack Boys. Um, and so I worked with 
Lonnie Kwan and Wayne again to make this new work. Um, one thing that I'll mention about the original, our first, our first time working together in um, in two thousand eight is that we made that um, our work for Vernon Avenue also included a um, a song that we commissioned by Dirty Projectors for um, um, that was that was performed and recorded <laughs> by Lonnie Kwan and Wayne, who then later went on to um, open um, for them um, at Barry Barn, like you know, a little while later. And um, so it was like a very funny um, and interesting hybrid product. I remember at the time, um, Dave Longstreth was living in Bed-Stuy, um, like not too far actually, kind of not too far from where I live now. Um, and um, so with, so um, I've, I've wor I worked with them for many years in a lot of different ways. Nice. Um, and that was the beginning of um, my work with music and my practice. Yeah. It's, you know, I can only, you know, I'm not, an expert in music, but what I've studied in music with is particular to jazz music because it's something that I've really been interested in a long time. And um, it seems like some of the ideas that you're talking about and some of these forms of expression that talk about black experience and like how um, that sort of improvisation and ideas like that stem out of like what was born in a lot of jazz music of this sort of, um, you know, this desire to sort of break free from a convention of a specific song, song structure and to explode that out and become sort of like an analogy between freedom of, you know, expression within the constraints of a song and freedom of expression within the constraints of a society that's sort of aligned against that kind of freedom. Um, do you think that it, it seems, it feels like these um, initiatives, like the way that from what I've seen of performances of yours, with, that it, you know, has music as a as a component of it, of expression and improvisation, and you know, is kind of like a, a really deep, uh, interesting extension of those sort of first steps of kind of improvisation within the constraints of music itself, and now is breaking out into institution like the museum or in society and in public performance spaces as opposed to just on the stage. A music stage in a you know a jazz club you know what i mean is that something that you are interested or i don't know that's just the angle that i bring as an avid like you know jazz fan and i took a great class with robert ferris thompson on sun Ra and you know and the importance of of jazz music and improvisation and its relationship to the black experience and you know and creativity and freedom and you know it, it to me that's the angle that i bring into it and that's something that I really find compelling, like that video of at MoMA of, you know, the saxophone, the, you know, playing the saxophone, moving into the space, into the space that's not a traditional performance space of like music and how powerful that is because it's such a different kind of um, way that the public engages with expression and improvisation and sonically just moving through a space. Those were things that I found really compelling. I mean, is that sort of what you're tapping into or is that just a small piece of like because it's I, I know you have a, a lot of ideas about this stuff and I don't want to sort of minimize it or just put it in a specific you know lane but that's kind of like my lane that I'm you know more accustomed to or interested in so yeah I don't know if that's something you could speak to yeah no I mean, I mean I'm always interested in hearing and and you know learning about other people's point of entry into the work and I was really thinking, you know, I'm really thinking also about what you're saying. Um, for me, um, improvisation, um, I understand improvisation to always unfold uh, in relation to constraints and in, and also that um, I, was, I, I was thinking about the ways in which the stuff that improvisation is made out of um, is, um, 
existing uh, symbolic systems like um, pitch relationships, for example, or sonic um, relationships associated with existing instruments and sounds that are familiar. And so it's really manipulating those conventions and those things that um, we recognize in ways that are new that make improvisation legible as music or in relation to genealogy and then make it good. Um, and a lot of the language that we use, in, uh, um, I'm, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud, but a lot of the language that we use around improvisation, like riff, for example, speaks to the relationship between like a, a, you know, a theme and its variations, so to speak. And so I think, and so I was thinking about that and just about the ways in which uh, for me, I think that the way that I use improvisation often uh, reveals the sort of dialectical relationship between freedom and constraint as opposed to simply unfolding as a performance of freedom, that, that freedom is only legible in the context of something, um, in the context of what feels like limitations, um, or it's understood perhaps as like a temporary space or zone of possibility and um, that temporariness is um, is always really clear for example in the in the the work that I was just talking about the um, the, the work in which I invited Lonique Vaughn and Wayne to improvise as a group with the language from Huey P Newton's um, speech at Boston College the um, it's you know it's hard for three people to improvise together in three-part harmony um, and yeah. you know it's it's awkward and it requires a deep concentration and anticipation and connection with the other, but it also is constantly revealing the ways and the places in which you're not connected or in which you're not um, aligned. There's this relationship between, you know, you're constantly thinking about what just happened and then the future, like where things were and where things can go. And um, there, you know, there, there are constant omissions and errors and those complications, the social complications and tensions were a really important part of how that how that work was experienced, I think. And then you also mentioned um, Promise Machine, which was a, a performance um, that unfolded. I mean, it was a, it was a commission that really had a, a multiple parts, but one of those parts was a performance that unfolded in the galleries at the Museum of Modern Art in 2015. For that work, I, you know, I worked with two vocalists and a saxophonist, and then I also had a musical director um, who's really a collaborator. Did, um, we now work together really closely on um, our own collaboration, um, as well as an amazing composer, um, Courtney Bryan, who was like a guiding voice. and. Um, we built a, um, um, together all of us built this, um, this performance, um, for the, the, the two vocalists and the instrumentalists that moved through the museum galleries, um, and, um, connected, um, linked together, um, multiple works in the, um, in the, in the, in the permanent collection of the museum, um, linked them, um, to each other and also, um, to the work of Jacob Lawrence, uh, who, um, whose solo exhibition was on view at that time. So um, he created this sonic path. Um, you know, so I've, I've heard that work spoken about and written about in different ways. Sometimes it's described as, um, as being in conversation with, um, with something like a, like a, like a parade or um, uh, you know, a kind of carnival, um, something that, um, that um, is a kind of moving performance. Um, there, um, it also was something that visitors really happened upon. It was scheduled, but most, you know, of course, most of the people that are at the museum and the galleries are not paying attention to the performance schedules. Um, and so there, yeah. it was often a surprise, <laughs> yeah. um, especially, and especially the performance actually began with a single pitch performed by the saxophonist, and um, that pitch was often a great shock to the people around um, right. 
who, yeah, were, um, I remember that the, um, in one performance, someone just went running to the guard, like, like, sir, sir, this man is playing a saxophone in the museum. Um, and of course the guard is like, well, uh, you know, obviously, um, you think I can't see that? Um, but it also, you know, it, of course it also speaks to, um, and it had a lot to do with the, um, the performers, um, two black men and a black woman and who were sort of protected by these security guards who were kind of um, clearing the way as they moved through the museum. Um, there are so few um, um, institutional um, uh, faces and representatives um, at the museum who are not white. I remember that when I went, I also had a video on view at MoMA, and I remember once when I went, the time that I went to actually install the video to review the installation, I was directed to the cafe. They were like, oh, are you, you're here for the cafe? And I said, no. And they're like, oh, well, it's, you know, that you must be a security guard. It's down here. And I'm like, no, I'm not here for the cafe, and I'm not a security guard, and I'm also not an, an educator. Um, I'm, you know, I'm an artist, and I'm here to meet with the curator, and this is where we're going. That, and I think that um, complexity was something that was really a part of the performance itself. Now I've digressed a little bit from this question about it. No, but I mean, that's such an important part, I think, of the work, and, and it's, you know, the power and the importance of it seems ever prevalent, and it needs to be addressed, and I think that's a really, that's kind of the power of that kind of a performance is that, you know, you know, those people that, oh, what's this guy doing playing, you know, like all those feelings of just turning upside down people's expectations of what everything is supposed to be and what is, you know, and, and, and listening or experiencing things in a way that's not the path that's just always thought of, or, you know, like kind of readjusting people's um, radars to like what is and what should be and what is um, you know expression and all that I mean it's so layered it's so hard to talk about because it's so deep and layered and I think a lot of times the reason that I really find your work amazing and um, and rich is that there's in so many ways when there's sort of like constructs or ideas behind work it's it can be summed up in a sentence or it's kind of like this work visually looks like this because it's talking about this experience and it's, it's definable, it's packageable, it's sellable. You know what I'm saying? It's just yeah. like, it can, it's, it's digestible in a way. It's like, Oh, okay. That's the artist that does that. And it's tied to that experience. And that's what that's about next. Right. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, nuance, complexity and subverting, people's expectations of what subject matter and what the conceptual you know driving force behind work how that's presented um making that complex i think recalibrates people's experience of digesting content that they may not, not be comfortable with or understand and that's when art can really sort of educate and, and or inform or you know improve people's understanding of like different experiences in our world and it, it doesn't happen that much, you know what I mean? And I think it's partially the structures that be, and it's partially um, a pressure to sort of package yourself or to, you know, narrow things down to one. I mean, we're in a society where everything is like, there's tweets, you know, you got to <laughs> get your point across <laughs> in like how many characters, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's really refreshing when, or, and I find it really I don't know, important and interesting when work operates on many different levels and it's not definable because that's when I think people start to expand their mind. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I don't know. 
if that's that's not a question, <laughs> well, it's more of a statement. Yeah, but. it's not exactly a question, but um, it's, it's, I agree. Um, I, of course, I agree that I think that's what's most interesting. Um, and, you know, it's certainly for myself, I have such a, um, I, I, I do so much research. Um, I don't even know if research is the right word because sometimes that um, sounds more bounded than it actually is. Um, the, um, the work is just, you know, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always reading and thinking and I often construct the work and think about it um, as part of a direct dialogue with other artists and with other um, thinkers and, and makers. Um, and I, I've, I've had to really think very expansively uh, uh, about, um, you know, with whom I understand my work to be in dialogue, um, because I, I see um, such an important part of my project as involving really identifying new genealogies for thinking about the kind of prehistory of the work that I do. I mentioned before that I, when I was a graduate student, I was, you know, I, I took this time to really focus on understanding European art history, American art history. And I, I, do, I do think um, that, that that work was really important. Um, and at the same time, I, you know, in my, in my, in my own practice, I've mostly been interested in finding uh, alternatives, um, alternatives to thinking about um, what, what, a, what a history might be, what a, a dialogue might be that can serve as, a, as the kind of context within which the work unfolds. So, yeah, you know, I think necessarily the work contains anything that we do is so much more complicated than we can um, describe in language. But I'm glad that you have that feeling because sometimes I worry about that, especially, um, you know, since we we haven't met, I don't know if you've, um, how, how much, if any of my work you've even um, seen in person. And um, I do sometimes talk about or write about the work and um, sometimes it's easy for people to allow that. Those words to substitute for the complexity of the of what's actually going on um right. yeah no I, th I think there's you know two kinds of people if you are there's the people who look at it and define it immediately or you know just have a, a quick reaction to it and there's people who are actually interested in what the artist is trying to say and then they bring an active investigation into that subject matter or, or the image or the experience you know it's just, you know, I mean, I dedicate my whole life to making art. That's what I do. And, um, you know, I know there's a lot of people who don't or won't dig deep or, or you know, won't think past like, oh, it looks pretty. It's a sunset or, you know, right. I, I just it's just part of it. You know, I think it's it's like that with music, too. I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of musicians who write songs and the, the lyrics are so meaningful and they're they're tied to a direct experience that you know, really means the world to them and other people hear it and they're like, yeah, I could dance to that. That sounds good. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, I think it's the nature right. of, of what you, what we do, you know? And, uh, yeah. but that idea that you're talking about of, I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to, to sort of encapsulate it, but I was thinking of a parallel of that, of, of a deeper understanding of like thinking about cultures and it's like the, you know, when you travel and you go to another culture another place another country and you experience there's such idiosyncrasies and and there's sometimes it can be off-putting in a way and sometimes it's extremely beautiful and poetic but you know to go and to have an understanding or to try to want to understand why people do things differently i think is there's such a beauty in that but then there's so many people who find that difficult or just like things the way they like it you know what i mean yeah. and um I think there's a parallel between that and art viewing and art in general of like, you know, there's the people who 
like, I don't understand it. This doesn't make sense. And, and they don't want anything to do with it or just cast it off. And then there's the people where it opens up a door in their mind. And I, I think that's, that's powerful. Even if you get one out of 200, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? That's kind of a beautiful thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I think it's true. I mean, it's interesting because as an artist who's not making like figurative paintings, um, sometimes I do, sometimes I find that curators in particular are, uh, and certain kinds of collectors um, have um, can have really conservative ideas about what accessibility means in relation to um, in relation to an, an art experience or practice. Um, but it, and it's so funny. It, I, I always find it kind of funny because for me, I mean, I mostly um, I actually work really closely with other people to make a lot of the work that I make, and those other people generally are not um, are not um, art history educated or, you know, MFA alums, um, I work with, you know, I, you know, recently, for example, I made a video, um, census planner for which I, you know, I worked with a, a um, a woman who's a, a mind minister and she's also a pastor. Um, and that was in the biennial, right? Yes. That was yeah, in the biennial. So. And I mean, we could not have had, I can't imagine having had a, like a deeper connection, um, with another maker, um, she completely. Um, we were completely aligned in the way that we thought about what we were doing, um, and I, you know, I had the real um, pleasure of meeting the community, like the leader. She was she's the leader of um, a, a group of women who are um, um, who work together um, as as my ministers, and um, all of them, uh, you know, everyone um, understands. It's actually I I really like working. Um, um, I, I think a lot about the context of the church. Um, for lots of reasons, um, and um, sometimes sometimes work closely with people who see their primary creative outlet as um, a kind of church context. Um, one of the great things, actually, about the contemporary Black church is that it offers a offers a, um, a creative quote unquote outlet for um, such a wide range of adults with such different kinds of training and interests. Um, and um and um there's always just such a like um i love the the kind of openness and flexibility and, um and way that we can really learn from each other last year i also made a video um called in succession which i worked with um for uh showtime showtime before showtime dancers um who mm -hmm. are um, acrobats and um they are you know super young 20 years younger than me and um again not you know um, don't have a, a background, for example, in art history, but we were able to have a really rich and complex discussion about the history of representation of acrobats um, and um, the kind of social and cultural role also of acrobatics um, in, um, in um, uh, you know, contemporary, contemporary culture, um, but also historically. And um, they had a deep, nuanced understanding also of physical of, the, of even just the kind of physical complexities and relationships that um, are required in order to produce different kinds of um, movement um, uh, sequences and physical configurations and ways that bodies can support each other and rely on each other. Um, I can't imagine that conversation being any more complex with anyone um, who's, um, you know, for example, had a, like an advanced degree in the same material um, there. Yeah. Um, their their knowledge was deep, and their and their commitment to the project was also really um, generous and rich. And um, I see many different um, many different interlocutors for the work that I'm making. Um, 
so it's something that I think about a lot though, this question of, um, of the community, the community of the work and the many different um, kind of um, um, ways to witness and um, be in conversation with and learn from um, and, and artwork. Yeah, it's really great that you've been able to seemingly tie in aspects of just hearing your path and like thinking of like gymnast, like doing gymnastics and, you know, and then writing and literature and music and like infusing that all within what you're doing. I'm sure that it must feel extremely intuitive in a nice way. You know what I mean? Cause I, I don't feel like so many people when, if we're talking like art practice, quote unquote, I, I just shiver a little saying art practice, but in their, what they're doing, that they've kind of feel this need to distill down to, okay, well, you know, I'll just do this side of what I'm interested in because, you know, merging all that together is going to be extremely, you know, complicated and, and difficult to sort of, not as difficult to make, but difficult to sort of disseminate out into the world. And part of being creative and, and having ideas and wanting to connect those is, is it's communication and you do want it to reach people's ears and eyes as much as possible because that's kind of, you know, what, what expression is, it's this conversation. So it must be really um, rewarding in the sense that if it seems like you've been able to take all these threads of, you know, the woven being that you are and it's coming out in that creative expression. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not well, a question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a question. Um, but I, you know, I think I, I maybe I, um, I don't know, one of the first questions you asked is if I grew up like taking, you know, enjoying, you know, um, painting and drawing classes and art class in school. And did I do AP art and that kind of thing? Or um, um, would I have that kind of relationship? And I, I maybe one of the benefits of not being um, super invested in art technique as a young as a as a really young person is that I um, by the time I by the time I sort of came around um, to art as a space where I could do some of the kinds of things that I wanted to do um, my my understanding of what it meant to be a good artist was still pretty open um, and maybe still is um, but I didn't have to I didn't have to overcome um, an idea that to, that to be a successful artist was to make work that looked like it could belong on the walls of the Cincinnati Art Museum, for example, which is quite a traditional <laughs> museum um, with a mostly painting collection. Um, but um, because, I, because I, I had never aspired, like that wasn't my first model for what it meant to imagine my future. And so I never, um, I, was, I was never um, like unduly influenced by that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is separate, but I joke around that, you know, when I was drawing as a kid, you know, I had friends who were really great at drawing and I was never that person. So I always joke that I'm kind of unencumbered by, you know, extreme talent in, in technical proficiency, which enables me to just do what I want to do and feel, you know, invest in that and not worry too much about that. You know, it, yeah. it's kind of open doors because, you know, I, th I think sometimes people feel tied to, not talking about talent, but people feel tied to a certain way of making because of that investment in the technical side of what they're doing. Whereas, I mean, malleability and working between areas, I think, I mean, I guess that's why so many people, you know, these days, as opposed to maybe 50 years ago, 100 years ago, champion, you know, interdisciplinary work because you can kind of, you know, weave through these areas and tie things together and communicate to a broader people maybe i don't know right 
I, you know, I think there's something to be said actually for, for, um, I, 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 I totally get what you're saying and, um, you know, not being encumbered by, um, by, um, having invested in developing a, a technical proficiency in, a, in the area in which you actually work. And I, um, I, I, I identify with that actually, um, um, that resonates with me a lot. I, I think one of what, you know, just to, back one of the things that felt really important to me when I as I began to sort of figure out what my what my path was so to speak um was to to really think about not situating my life in the within the stuff that I was best at like there are things that I'm technically really good at um but I have um sort of intentionally never focused on um, developing technical proficiency that might limit the way that I develop my ideas or my practice. So just that was something. Um, uh, and then um, in terms of my day-to-day, I what do I spend a lot of time doing? I spend a lot of time reading and a lot of time writing these days because I'm working on a book project. Um, and also a lot of time, I would say, just like everybody else, kind of grazing. Like I have the places that I graze for ideas and information and um, potential, you know, um, potential actors or people that I might work with in, in different projects or um, new ways of thinking about things. Um, I um, I do listen to music. I do play music. We, you know, I have. Um, I have a piano. I spend. I. I. I, um, the, um, I mentioned that um, kind of movement practice is also a really important part of my life and has been for the last several years. And I. Um, I um, am really. Um, I spend. I definitely um, take time every day to kind of um, focus on my relationship with my own body. But then I also spend a lot of time teaching, actually, and thinking about my students and in conversation with my students and thinking about what it means to be, what it means to create community um, um, for, you know, this group of people and how I can um, support their, um, how I can support their, um, them where they are at this moment and um, how I can help them to um, feel grounded and confident and also, um, um, I don't know, um, unbounded in their relationship with their, their, the sort of the well of resources that they all each contain individually within them. Um, and um, so I, I actually spend a lot of time um, working with my, my students and thinking about, thinking about how I can um, help them to um, be everything that they want to be. That I, this is like an advertisement for Rutgers because I would sign up for your <laughs> class in a minute. <laughs> Lucky students. Um, it's hard, right, with the physical exercise thing being in lockdown, right? What are you doing? Like, is it has it been tricky? Because I, I um, feel like, I, I mean, I play soccer all the time and, and physical, it's such a huge part of my life. Like, I feel like you have to keep like exercising and in physical shape it's the same as like working in the studio and you know you want to just keep yourself on point and it's hard being stuck in a small apartment it is really hard um i'm not assuming that yours is small mine i'm still talking about mine. (laughs) (laughs) yeah my apartment isn't actually that small um so i have you know i do have like a lot of workout stuff at home it's not i don't have a gym um but i have enough that i can um that i can work out and um i have 
you know, some stuff. Um, so that really helps. Um, I also have a lot of like calisthenics stuff that I do. I really, you know, gymnastics is so my, you know, so rooted in like, um, and dance too. It's so rooted in just like using your body as resistance. And, um, I do a lot of handstands. My handstands have really improved since lockdown. Nice. I can, um, and circulation, right? It's good for, <laughs> it's good for circulation. Yeah. My pull-ups, I've been working on my pull-ups. Um, nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it, it's hard, especially it's hard because for me, what I really also benefit from, I love to be a student. Like I take a lot of classes actually. I, I love taking, that's why, you know, I love taking dance class. I love, you know, going to gymnastics and working with coaches who are, you know, who bring this other expertise and who can help me find new ways of talking about and thinking about my own relationship to my body and I you know I have um so many kinds of um I think it's so important actually um I think uh, as a teacher it's really important to to be a student a real student not the kind of the way that um the, the way that um, I've noticed that um, faculty sometimes describe themselves as kind of lifelong learners but it's a yeah. path that they create for themselves as opposed to allowing um, um allowing yourself to um, let go of the the kind of uh, teacher-student hierarchy um, that it's so easy to reproduce um, as faculty. Um, one of the ways to do that is to is to kind of humble yourself to be a student. Totally, totally agree. I, I like music lessons. I'll do online stuff, and I feel like it just puts you in that spot. You know, where you're like, oh, yeah, back to square one. Nothing's more humbling than like starting something new or learning a new program or something, and you're like, oh, geez, like, and it you can identify with feeling like you know you've not. Like in your own stuff that you do, if you spend 20 years doing it, you feel pretty confident or you feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing in this, you know, even if you don't, there's just like right. a sort of, I think that's totally. super important to, to hit that refresh button on learning. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think learning with others is also really, is also really helpful. And um, one of the things I really appreciate actually about some of the movement communities I'm involved with is how non-hierarchical, like how horizontal they are, that there's a way in which everyone is always, um, you know, taking classes from each other. You, you know, you, I might be a student alongside my teacher who's also the student of another teacher who's also a student. Um, and we, and, um, and I myself am not, you know, I'm not, I didn't even start taking dance um, uh, until I, until a few years ago, I'm not a dancer, um, but I, I, um, I can I can have these um, sort of different kinds of relationships um, in different contexts with different people and also witness that around me and I found that to be really productive and that is something um, that I miss although I've taken some really amazing classes and been part of some really great um, movement based conversations even since lockdown um, in particular um, Marion Spencer um, is a New York based um, uh, movement instructor, facilitator, guider, um, who's, um, his class I, um, I found to be really beautiful and, um, really generative. Um, one of my favorite teachers when I was in Cambridge, um, Whitney Cover, she's in, she's based in Berlin now. She teaches really great classes, Pilates classes, and also open movement classes. Um, so those kinds of things have been really, um, have been really helpful, but of course it's not the same. Um, yeah. Well, you do what you can, right? Like my uh, online yoga classes are killing me. Like <laughs> yeah. Flexibility is so important and I just have to come to terms with that's it's difficult for me. <laughs> yeah. Mobility is hard because it's, you know, it's like, even though, you know, for me, especially because I have some goals 
that I think of as strength goals, but actually I have a mobility hurdle to get over before I'm ever going to be able to accomplish them. And yet it's really easy for me to spend lots of time working on building my strength or building my endurance, but it's really hard for me to feel like I'm like working in the right way when I'm yeah. working on mobility. Um, it's, it's a, it's a serious, um, it's a serious hurdle that I, I have to work on every day. Yeah. I think stuff. I have improved a little bit. My mobility has improved a little bit since since lockdown, but I'm not. I certainly not as much as it needs to. Yeah, you could spend. I hear about people who spend like two hours in the morning stretching every day, and I'm like, oh my, that must be. A, you yeah. must feel amazing. B, that you're spending a lot of time doing. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, I think I for me, I feel like I've made the most progress in flexibility if I do it really regularly. Yeah. Um, um, well, there's two ways. One is doing it really intensely, but um, for um, specific, you know, specific muscle groups, but um, but less often. Um, but then I've also sometimes found it to be useful just to do it all the time. And I think maybe um, it helps because you know, there's not that I don't think there's the science around flexibility is really resolved, but um, it seems as though there are sort of cognitive aspects, like where does your body feel comfortable? Um, does your, you know, teaching your body that it's safe in a, in a, um, in a particular position, um, as you know, as well as, as physiological aspects, but that, that the kind of cognitive thing seems to do better with free, with more frequency. Yeah. It's good stuff. I started to learn how to box, which is crazy. Oh, wow. Never wow. thought I would do that, but. Nice. That sounds fun. That sounds really fun. It's intense. But you know, it's 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 sometimes that's counterintuitive to or not counterintuitive, but flexibility I know is more important. But there's something stress relieving about the boxing that's kind of nice. You know? Totally. It's a balance, do you have like right? a boxing? Do you box against something? Do you have like a, a bag? Shoot. Yeah, I got the whole thing. Oh, amazing! Yeah, it's that it's sounds good. Really it, it, it you could do it in a small space too, which is nice. Exactly. But yeah. it is a workout. I'm sure. Even the, boxing, like even whatever it's called, you know, kickboxing without anything is yeah, a real workout. Totally. Yeah, it's like full body. So I had uh, a lot of problems. I started doing some boxing type <laughs> home workouts a few years ago, but they, uh-huh. but I had a lot of problems with my shoulders. And I feel like my, um, maybe my, there was some like issue with my form that I never was able to resolve. I might, um, my shoulders are so, um, I'm not going to say damaged, but you know, they're worn. imperfect. Yeah. Worn <laughs> from decades, decades of, um, decades of gymnastics. So, um, yeah, I, I have that with my knees from soccer. I just know they're, they're, they're worn out, you know, so I can't yeah. do things that are too, too like when I do the kickboxing stuff, like if I ever try that, it's a little hard. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta read your body sometimes, you know? Yeah. But I've got a, you know, I also, it's, it's funny because as, in the last five years or so, as I've become um, more connected to my body in a more consistent way, I've um, found that I'm actually a, a lot stronger and have um, much, um, like I've, my, my body has become much more reliable um, for me than it had been before. And I've yeah. actually have um, reversed, and not reverse isn't even quite the right word, but I think I, before I used to think that certain kinds of deterioration were inevitable. <laughs> and now I've come to realize that actually it was mostly through neglect that things, you know, that certain things were happening in my body and that it didn't have to be that way. And so um, now I'm like a little more attentive to the fact that um, you know, there's, there's some things that do get worn out, of course, and that don't necessarily replenish, but there are others that, um, 
just need to be attended to. Right. So. Totally. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so what are you attending to with your, with working right now? Do you have anything? I mean, I know everything's on pause, but are you working towards any projects specifically that people will be able to see? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that happened, I think with the, um, with the, with the pause is that I, um, I mean, it felt like such a, oh my gosh, such a relief to not have to do everything that I was scheduled to do. And that was itself such a wake up call for me, um, that I was, um, that I've been really, really overcommitted and kind of running myself ragged and not even enjoying much of my professional life anymore. I'm still feel really a lot of, you know, of course, a lot of, um, enjoyment and connection to my, to my, you know, intellectually and creatively to my, to my practice, to my work, but so much time is just spent administering travel and exhibitions and um, not in a good way. Um, so I, I really have been trying to figure out how I can slow down. Um, and well, nothing like a pandemic to slow that down. I know, but, I, I mean, but in like a long-term way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how, how I can slow down and, um, and without, um, I think sometimes the temptation when you slow down is, um, is to really, uh, is to take is to take away the things that are less lucrative or the things that are less visible, and that's not what I want to do. Um, and so the the challenge is to figure out like how do I how do I reduce the number of commitments that um, that feel um, like they're hurting my um, ability to have peace with my you know with my with my my intellectual life um, my 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 life as a maker um, without um, only doing the things that make the most money or only doing the things that are most, you know, prestigious or affiliated with certain kind of institutions or something. So that right. has been a challenge, but I mean, I mean, I can say that some of the things I'm working on now, um, so I have a collaboration with Justin Hicks called Microcosmos and um, we um, have been working on a, um, a, um, a kind of, movement and sound based work that's actually quite ambitious um, that um, uh, draws from the a particular moment in um, the during the touring life of Nina Simone um, a performance at Morehouse College during which she um, offered up this um, or pulled out this black orchid that she had been gifted um, at another college that, um, um, previous day in New Jersey and um, and showed it and this was in the middle of a performance of to be young gifted in black and kind of sh um, like showed it to everyone as a signal of the kind of international and national network of dreamers and revolutionaries that these um, that these black students at Morehouse were a part of um, and um, we've, Justin and I have been using that moment as the kind of starting point for this body of work that is connected to that song um, and is also connected to Lorraine Hansberry's work. Um, of course, her, um, her play to be young, gifted in black, but also thinking a lot about her work more broadly um, and also thinking a lot about our own families, um, especially our mothers um, and their kind of migration and transit. Um, so we're working towards this performance, um, the, or multiple um, instant um, kind of performative experiences um, um, that um, will take place in, you know, different countries. And um, most of, you know, they, um, they, those are happening in the fall and next spring and in the future. Um, 
and um, I'm working toward an, a, a solo exhibition um, that will actually be in Cincinnati um, that nice. opens next year that I'm really excited about. And, um, and um, uh, yeah, and also some, some smaller projects and a video commission. And I, um, the, the um, in succession uh, work that I mentioned um, that I made um, last year uh, is in 2019 is um, is part of a, a kind of collection of works. Um, so I'm working on, I'm sort of pre-planning um, the next set of videos and also sculptures um, that will um, that will be part of that. And I'm really excited about that. Um, I don't know. And then I'm working on this book that is um, tied to the work that I've been doing with pantomime. Um, the I'm sorry, the um, the census plenier video um, that I mentioned with Reverend Susan Webb and also the similitude and onsimilitude um, um, performance and also um, and also um, video works that I made last year. Um, I'm now working on a book um, for primary information that will um, that will that is a fiction like it's a it's a it's a novella. Um, so it's that's something that's really new for me and I'm really excited about because it's something that I haven't done um, and. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are like, I guess those are the main things that I'm working on for the next. <laughs> I'm sorry, this this work, projected workflow is not aligning with your desire to turn, <laughs> I know. to scale things back as far as, yeah, that's great though. I mean, it's, I mean, you have so many um, great ideas and great projects. It's really exciting. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I don't know. I don't really know what to do. Um, I don't know how to make it I mean with the writing I mean part of it is just being I'm, like I'm very reg regimented and kind of organized in the way I think about my time um uh to the extent that I can be and so I have you know times that I'm working on this and times I'm working on that and you try to kind of carve out space for different things to happen um and um yeah but I also it's I, I also just really um I think that a big part of what I'm willing, what I'm able to pare down is not doing as much traveling. I think if I, um, if I am continuing to make and have all these projects that are kind of going, but I don't have to travel so much, um, for other stuff. Like I usually do a lot of talks and, um, and, um, and, you know, sometimes I'll travel for something I don't really need to, like I'll do a small performance in connection with a group show when really I could, you know, the show is fine with just yeah. whatever is on the wall, those kinds of things. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that pairing that back will make it enable me to have a more continuous kind of work experience. But I'm always, I also, I don't know about you, but I, I'm always trying looking at like what other artists do to, to like how they work with and how they work with their assistant or how, you know, what um, tools you use, how do you organize your day um, in order to, um, in order to keep things streamlined. And I'm always trying to like find, like hoping there's going to be some magic bullet that's just going to like, <laughs> Save yeah, me. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I try not to look at that at all because I'll just get depressed because I have no assistant. I, no one helps me with any of my projects and I have a kid. So my schedule is just like his schedule. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just barely trying to squeeze out whatever I can, whatever I can. So, but it's stuff I love. So you, you do, you know, I feel like if you, if you didn't love doing it, you wouldn't be willing to put the energy into it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of, you know, we'll, we'll take it easy. We'll retire one day, right? <laughs> Huh. Right. The other thing that's happening, yeah, is that my husband is um, 
is launching a, um, I guess, a, a kind of salon, and he's um, working on a lot of projects that are um, connected to our community um, um, where we live on um, Lewis Place in Brooklyn. And so I've been um, kind of brainstorming and helping think that through. And that's something that feels really aligned um, with what I imagine that a better life for me <laughs> could be, yeah. Um, yeah. which is a little bit more um, connected also to the to the immediate community and also a pace that feels um, a little bit more um, a little bit more moderate and right. um, conversations that can unfold over time. That's what I miss most of actually about Houston um, is the ability to be in conversation in a deep way over time with yeah. the same people. That's what I like about teaching actually is the, is the ability to do that. Definitely. Well, I'm super excited to finally get to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking all this time. And at least you didn't have to travel. <laughs> at least I didn't. I was, you know what? I was just thinking that. I was actually like, you know what? This is so much better. If I had, had, to, if I had to go somewhere today, um, that would have just... No. No. It's so much better to not have to, to be able to be at home and have this conversation in the comfort and peace of home and then go back to the next thing. I, I have like... Uh, even a few more minutes before the next meeting. So, nice. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. It was really nice to talk to you too. Thanks. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can check out images on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at Alfred Studio. As always, many thanks to Michael Lovett for the introduction, Evan Marion for the intro and outro music, and thank you to Stephanie for taking the time out to talk to me. Uh, you can find out more about her work at her website, Stephanie Jemison. And you can also support this podcast by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. It really helps keep it in the public sphere, keep it on the radar of others, um, share it with a friend, post something about it. That always helps. You can also check out my new podcast called Brave New World, which is on all platforms. And it's about creative people talking about COVID-19 pandemic life and being creative in the midst of an epidemic. It's not limited to artists, it's designers, it's actors, it's musicians, restaurateurs, all sorts of people on that podcast. So uh, check that out. It's kind of like a positive thing in this challenging time that we're living in right now all stuck inside most of all thank you to all the listeners for your support uh keep tuned we got lots of great episodes upcoming artists from all over the world some good episodes so make sure you stay subscribed on your platforms and uh keep keep listening